Last weekend, I participated in a uh, youth retreat known as Happening in the Diocese. I don't know about you, but I haven't spent a weekend deeply considering how hard it is to be a teenager since, well, I was one, and all those repressed memories of how hard it is to deal with all those feelings bubbled up steadily all weekend long. I don't think we have any in that category in here, so we're safe to say. One activity we had was called a priest in a hot seat, where the teenagers had a chance to ask the priests who were there uh, about anything, God, life, whatever was on their minds. Some of the questions were just as unrepeatable from the pulpit as you might imagine. However, there was a specific question that came up from about every group or so, a common thread with the others, and a common thread, too, I think, to everyone who has started to grow up even a little bit in their faith. You can ask it a few different ways. How do you answer arguments about whether or not God exists? If God is so powerful, why aren't things better in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? It enters into the scripture this week, my favorite, my very favorite story in the Bible, the saga of Joseph. Now, if you read that a few moments ago and felt a little embarrassed that you hadn't been paying close attention to the Old Testament readings for weeks now, don't be. It's not you who has been absent. Joseph has. They've dropped us here for one week only, and only in the very end of the story. But you know the story of Joseph. He's the youngest of 12, and the problems start with Dad's gift of a special technicolor robe given to Joseph alone. His brothers are, shall we say, not as impressed. I know none of you have favorite children, of course, but as one of four siblings, we all know who the favorite is. <laughs> and this might not be as uncommon as you imagine. The coat and the favoritism themselves seem to have gone to Joseph's head. He brags about having dreams of becoming a celestial power to which the sun and moon and stars shall bow to. He dreams of his brothers falling to their knees before his awesome renown. His brothers conspire to kill him, and at this point in the story, we see their point. Reuben, my fellow eldest, fellow good and somewhat rule-following eldest, intervenes, and instead they throw Joseph into a pit. Slave traders purchase him soon after. The brothers cover their tracks by ripping Joseph's precious coat and drenching it in animal blood to show their father that Joseph was mauled to death. Now, Joseph doesn't get out of that metaphorical pit for a long time, years. Eventually, he rises up to the level of a good slave, but still a slave. And even that relative worth is taken from him when he is accused of soliciting the governor's wife and is thrown into jail. He's forgotten there, in this pit, and now with a record attached to his name. Years of pain because of some youthful arrogance. I mean, I know I wasn't any better. Like our lectionary today, folks have tended to jump right to the end 
of the Joseph story. And it is lovely. Joseph scraped his way out from the pit. All these years later, his star has risen to that of a celestial power. He's second in command in Egypt, vice pharaoh, and his brothers show up to petition for food as there is a terrible famine in the land. They don't recognize their lost little brother. Joseph toys with them for weeks, as though he is torn between two realities. The reality of harm that they, his brothers, have done to him all those years in the pit, all the harm that should come back upon them if justice were to be served, and the reality of his brothers, a generation older, wiser, who might love him. He has to choose which of these to follow, and for a while it seems like he will succumb to the power of the pit that he's known for so long. More emotionally laden storytelling I don't think you'll find in the rest of the Bible. Which is why we shouldn't skip to the end of the book. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, this is not the blithe answer to the question of why bad things happened to him, though it can sound that way. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. That answer can only be heard in its terrible costliness. In saying this, Joseph lets go of his desire for revenge, the bitterness of being wronged, that strange familiarity of depression, and he weeps, he weeps for the pain of letting it go. You cannot tell me that Joseph felt this way while he was in the pit, that he would have vowed to the rats that kept him company, this is all because God loves me and has a good plan for my life. You don't hear him say that. But this idea that God was at work is also not something that someone else tells Joseph to believe. It's something that he has to arrive at. The worst example of pastoral care I've experienced in life was when I was 13, in the week after my best friend was killed, and some very loving and concerned person in my life wanted me to name everything good that had happened because my friend had died. We don't get to make meaning for others. And when you're in the pit, it's mostly senseless anyway. It's dark. There's no sense of time. And you're always isolated, even in a crowd. The danger of being a priest in a hot seat is dispensing answers that, is, that I think that Joseph, Joseph's answer is a very good one, as true as anything I've ever heard as to why bad things happen to good people. And maybe not even good people, maybe just regular people like Joseph and you and me. But I don't get to make you believe that answer. 
What I'm trying to say is that it, this is something that must be lived, that it is entirely up to the person who has experienced the terrible thing. It is not God up in the sky with a blueprint saying, I'm going to orchestrate this thing to happen to teach you a lesson about attachment or arrogance or pride or that God wanted another angel in heaven that gives me a God I'm not sure I could trust. A terrible thing happens to Joseph. He emerges from the pit and asks why something so meaningless and painful had to happen to him. And then he looks around, sees where he's at, begins to notice God in ways that he had never before. Joseph notices that he is being transformed, and he calls what's happening in him God. Which is another way of saying that God is in the business of bringing life out of death out of the very dead parts of our lives. It doesn't change the fact that there was death. It doesn't give purpose to that death, but that there was always a power at work, he's saying. The decay in the soil mysteriously working to nurture something that you could not imagine would grow again. So no. I do not have any argument or logical arm-twisting that could convince of the existence of God. I found stories that were deeply true. I found in Jesus not a God here to zap my suffering away, but who was broken by human hands and human wills, the same way that we all are. And from that brokenness, which is all our brokenness, something entirely new and unpredictable emerged. But how does God's power differ from the way I view power? Well, now you're asking good questions. <laughs>